Uh, our topic this morning is eschatology. Big word just means study of last things, study of last events. Eschatos means last. Ology means study of. So it's the study of last events or uh, last things. It's a huge topic. I mean, uh, if you were to look at all the things that are involved in eschatology, you'd have to talk about heaven and hell. You'd have to talk about the resurrections, the judgments, many other kinds of things like that, as well as what we're going to be talking about today. Um, we, you know, we spend 30 hours in uh, a seminary studying eschatology in one of the classes that I taught. So we've narrowed down the topic a little bit to kind of look at it through the paradigm of the day of the Lord, the impending day of the Lord, which is still a huge topic. Um, maybe 20 key events occur in the day of the Lord. And we're going to focus, therefore, just on the big picture, just kind of do a survey. And we'll have probably some time for a, a few questions at the end. Um, uh, so if you have something left over, I'm going to try my best to just kind of just do the survey and get us to thinking how the Bible treats eschatology and what is the context for eschatology. So our goals, you can see on your paper, is to analyze the biblical foundations of eschatology through the paradigm of the day of the Lord. We're going to kind of look at the eschatology through the glasses of the day of the Lord. And then secondly, identify the key features of biblical eschatology. We can't do them all. But my desire is, you know, when you start talking about eschatology, the tendency is to, of some people to kind of force their system on the Bible. We don't want to do that. We want to start with the Bible and just kind of let the Bible tell us what's in there. And then when we've done, when we've done that, then number three, then we can identify systems, especially when I make sure we know what you believe in your doctrinal statement, at least premillennialism and pre-tribulationism. As I thought about this message also, I wondered, I thought about how should we respond to the teachings of the day of the Lord. And if, you're, if a person were unsaved, uh, he ought to be terrified of, of the things that are coming up. And he ought to try to find a relationship with God as quickly as, as he can. But for us who, are, who know the Lord through Jesus Christ, know God through Jesus Christ, I think that the teachings about the impending day of the Lord are quite an encouragement. As when you begin to look around at all the things that are going on in our culture and in the world today, it could be pretty discouraging, but it's, it's going to be great for us to know that God is in control of the situation, and we have some really wonderful things to think about uh, that will guide our, our Christian life. So my big idea there, we should be encouraged by the Bible's teachings about the day of the Lord. And first of all, because the Lord in, is in sovereign control over the cosmic war that's in heaven and earth. That may sound kind of weird, but the, the, the eschatology actually starts in Genesis. And Genesis chapter 3, as a matter of fact. And the backstory there, as you see on your syllabus, your handout, it begins in Eden, where we meet three of the prominent characters that will participate in the day of the Lord. First of all, there's the creator God. And secondly, there's a the human race in the person of Adam and Eve. And thirdly, there is one of these rulers from the unseen realm that shows up there, whom we later learn he is the devil. Did you know that God at different times in his eternity created two different sons of God? 
the first sons of God that he created were a group who were intended to help him rule in the unseen world. And maybe kind of a hierarchy of stuff. And then secondly, God created the other sons of God, who the human race, to rule the visible world with him. So remember now, whenever you look into the Bible and try to figure out what God's doing, his intention was to live right here with us in the human race, and he would have used us, had we not sinned, to take the glories of Eden and spread them all across the world, and maybe also onto other planets. So, and eventually God does end up eating, in, living with us according to the end of the book of Revelation. So God created the human race in his likeness in order to be his imagers, his reflectors, his representatives here on earth in order to spread his glory and the glory of all that he had created for us. Then you have the fall takes place, capital B in your outline. The backstory is the fall. One day one of the sons of God shows up in there and he says to Adam and Eve, I've got some really good news for you. You know, God is pretty restrictive, isn't he? He creates all these nice things, but then he won't let you participate in most of it. Of course, they created almost everything except that could participate except for one thing. And he tells them, you know, if you will eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you won't have to be paying any attention to what God says. You can be independent from God, and here's the best part. If you do this, from now on, you'll be able to decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. And, of course, that's very attractive to mankind. They're still doing it today, right? Everybody is deciding for themselves what is good and what is evil. An offer apparently was too good for Adam and Eve, and they rebelled against God. Can't be too hard on Adam and Eve because I think the implications are we would have done the same thing were we in that situation. So then the third part of the backstory, capital C, is the War of the Ages. Later that day, you know how the story goes, God comes into the garden. And they heard him coming, and they're terrified, and they try to hide themselves. And it's just like the people in the future day of the Lord. We read in Revelation 6 and verses 16 and 17, will call the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of him who is who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath is come, and who can stand? So they're trying to do anything they can to hide from God's appearance at that time, as they did whenever God showed up with Adam and Eve. So, let me get my PowerPoint out there. I got that. So, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between... You and the woman, he says to the devil, this is part of the curses that he brings with him, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now there are two really important truths here that you've got to grasp. One is that God is definitely still in control. Okay, so you had rebellion here, uh, the wicked one is involved, but God is calling the shots. So he's saying, okay, so having had this happen, this is what's going to happen. Because of what you've done, this is going to be a, uh, this war. And that's the second point, is that uh, the cosmic war has begun. That was going to last throughout 
all of history. And I gave, put you on your uh, handout again, a chart, the cosmic war of the ages. This is the way I understand what God was saying. On the left side of it, you have the forces of good. This is God and the godly angelic beings, uh, opposite of Satan and the wicked angelic beings. You have the plural offspring of the woman and the plural offspring of the devil with all those under them. And then you have the singular offspring of the woman, that's Jesus Christ, God incarnated, and the singular offspring of Satan, that's Antichrist, Satan indwelt. So the word offspring is one of those interesting words. It could be either singular or plural. And I think in this situation it's both singular and plural. So you have the plural offspring of the woman and the plural offspring of the devil, and then you have the singular offspring of the woman and the singular offspring of, of Satan. Now we know that Christ disarmed Satan at the cross and the resurrection, but we don't see that yet. And so I have in your text there, in your syllabus there, Hebrews 2.8, Now in putting everything in subjection to Christ, he left nothing outside his control. At present, though, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So we, this uh, victory of Christ has not, not yet really been manifested to us but I'm telling you that in the day of the Lord, the entire right side of my chart there is going to be judged and uh, put into punishment at that time. So during the day of the Lord, Christ is going to kill the Antichrist guy. And during the day of the Lord, at the end of the, end of the judgment period, God is going to place Satan into the pit. And so the victory of Christ will become manifest, and he will then become the mediator of, the, of this entire planet. Present time, who's in charge of the planet? Who is the god of this world? That's Satan, right? He's the one who is the god of this world. God is still sovereign over everything, but the mediatorial, so to speak, ruler is Satan. And uh, when the day of the Lord is finished with his judgments, Jesus Christ is going to be sitting on a throne and be the king of the world at that particular time. So we can be encouraged. Uh, the ESV Study Bible makes a good point here that God rules over all these conflicts and events. He limits their scope, and he has a precise timetable for the trials of the saints to be completed when he will finally intervene to cleanse and deliver his people. And then second, we should be encouraged by the events of the day of the Lord because the Lord will keep his promises to Israel. Now, here's the, here's the fourth player, fourth major player in the day of the Lord. First of all, you've got God, then you've got the human race, you've got the devil, and the fourth player is going to be uh, the nation of Israel. Remember how this worked out. You have, after the flood, people still continued to rebel against God, and they set up this tower. Remember the Tower of Babel, or Babel, however you want to say it there? And uh, this tower was kind of an in-your-face God, we can do this by ourselves. We don't need you. We can even set up our own worship system, and we're going to worship whoever we want to, but we want to keep it this one world government right here in what really is Babylon. One world government right here in Babylon. The Lord dispersed them at that time, changed their languages, dispersed them, and so forth, but did not forget these nations of the world. And what he did then was to choose one man, and his, and his descendants and the nation that came out of him to become the means of witnessing to these other nations of the world. 
So God called Abraham. This is Genesis 12, verses 1 and 3. There's no reason why God called Abraham. Abraham was uh, an idol worshiper at that particular time. God graced him, called him. And so in chapter 12, verses 1 3, this is a famous passage. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the phrase I'm looking for. And in you, all the families, all the nations, all the tribes of the earth are going to be blessed. So even though God focused on Israel, it was that Israel was supposed to be the witness to Yahweh, to Jehovah, uh, to all these nations of the world. And then he cuts this co covenant with Abraham, just to go a little further. Remember this kind of a mystical situation. God comes to Abraham. Abraham asks how he will know that he will possess the land there. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, you know, some sort of a fiery theophany that walks down through these cut up animals, uh, passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. Okay, so this is the covenant that God makes with him. Now, this again, this is a covenant that's on God. It's because it's only God that walks down through these pieces of animals. Normally, the two parties would walk down when they're making a covenant. But Abraham doesn't get to walk. God walks right down, and he's saying, this is on me. I'm going to keep this covenant. I'm going to be faithful to it. And essentially, if I don't, then the curses will fall upon me that might have come to a disobedient covenant partner. And then the uh, irrevocable nature of it, capital C, God makes the Abrahamic covenant irrevocable. You can read about that. Not only do you see it there in the passage itself, but also in the New Testament, for God made a promise to Abram, since he had no one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you, and thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained a promise, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible to lie, that God had encouraged his people. All right, so two reasons why we know in this passage that God made an irrevocable covenant with Abraham. Number one is this unchangeable oath that we just read about in Genesis chapter 15. And number two is because of the character of God, it's impossible for God to lie. All right, so we have this great Abrahamic covenant between God and the people of Abraham and his descendants. So God's going to be faithful to that covenant, and we can be encouraged by that. Because if he's not, in, not faithful to that covenant, why would he be faithful to your covenant and my covenant with him? You know, he would, you know, he would say, I'm saving you, but I'm not going to save you. Okay, we don't want anything to do with an unfaithful God who would lie. 
And so he made the covenant through us. He, he makes the new covenant with us. And he made the Amorite covenant with Abraham. Then we could be encouraged thirdly because the Lord has decreed catastrophic judgments on Satan and his offspring during the day of the Lord. God is a moral God. Did you know that? And of course you did. And uh, he's, he, he will, he, because he's moral, he's going to have to judge the world. That comes out of his character. He's going to have to judge sin wherever it shows up. Now, we're not going to be here for the judgments of the day of the Lord in my eschatology. And we find most of the information about the day of the Lord in the literary prophets. So the literary prophets in the Old Testament, you know, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, those are longer prophets. And then you have the 12 minor prophets, Hosea, Obadiah, all those kind of prophets. I don't know. I think probably if we were to take a, a vote here as to who you think is the, what part of the scriptures is the least understood or read, uh, we'd maybe come to the Old Testament prophets. You know, I know people say, why are there so many? They say the same thing over and over. They seem to be so grouchy about things, you know. Well, yeah, that's true, but they're really pretty important for eschatologies. They're not the kind of uh, books either. I mean, how many of you ever heard a sermon on Zephaniah? <laughs> Everybody said, my life verse is Obadiah 1-2. No, nobody says those kind of things, you know. You just don't get into the Old Testament prophets at all. Uh, and, and I was going to say, you don't really, you can't go verse by verse to the Old Testament prophets. I mean, if Pastor Gary started in on the book of Isaiah <laughs> verse by verse, It'd be the rest of his career, and there wouldn't be any people here either. So we, we don't do that. But if we could come up some way with studying the themes or the big ideas of the Old Testament prophets, we ought to do that because they're a very important part of what God says about eschatology. Sometimes people say, well, the only eschatology is Revelation, you know, book of Revelation. Oh, no. Eschatology saturates Scripture beginning in Genesis chapter 3. The first prophecy was made by God himself. So... The Lord has used the literary prophets. They're actually the only ones who speak about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. And you find it in the New Testament as well, but the only ones in the Old Testament. Okay, so if you look at your syllabus, let me just read some of the statistics here. The specific phrase, day of the Lord, is found 17 times in eight of the 16 prophets. And seven of the other eight use similar phrases, such as the day of wrath, and proclaim the same messages as those who use the specific phrase, the day of the Lord. I'll say more about that in a minute. It's not an exaggeration, as one of the theologians has said, to say that the prophets want us to comprehend that the decisive events of the day of the Lord are the greatest of all events in the future, bringing history to consummation. A definition of the day of the Lord, this is mine, there are others. The day of the Lord refers to Yahweh's unmistakable, special, intervention into world affairs in which he judges his enemies, saves a remnant at the arrival of the Messiah, renews creation, vindicates and exalts himself, establishes the kingdom of God on earth, and prepares the new heavens and the new earth. It's basically, if you want to know what the day of the Lord is, it's the time when the Lord takes over the planet. He replaces Satan with the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he rules in a much more functional way with the devil out of the picture. So the day of the Lord is an era that includes, one, the Lord's sovereign intervention into the world 
in an unmistakable way the Lord's judgment on his enemies, both Jews and Gentiles, Messiah's arrival at a crucial time of battle, the salvation of a remnant of Jews and Gentiles, the renewal of creation, the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth, the vindication and exaltation of the Lord, and the burning and dissolving of the present heavens and earth and the preparation of the new heavens and new earth. Then some clarifications. Number one, the day of the Lord will last more than 24 hours. When we're talking about a day, we're not talking about 24 hours. Uh, oftentimes, for the ancient Hebrews, the term day was pregnant with the idea of uh, decisive events. And so that's what we see in the day of the Lord. It's going to last years and years and years, beginning with this period of judgment. Secondly, the day of the Lord is described with other day terms. I mentioned it before, but other phrases such as the day, that day, the great day, the day of wrath, the coming day, these occur dozens of times in the Old Testament prophets. So if you put together the day of the Lord and these other day terms, you come up with about 100 times that the phrase is used. These phrases are used in the Old Testament to talk about the same events. Um, then number three, another clarification, the day of the Lord will be centered in the Middle East. Ezekiel calls the Middle East the center of the earth, and the nations that are involved in the day of the Lord are consistently located in the Middle East and North Africa. So I don't know if you can see, if you can see uh, little Israel up there, you probably can't. It's so little, but look at all the nations that surround the nation of Israel. So if you go up to Turkey in the north and west, Iran probably over into the east, down to Saudi Arabia, Egypt, also northern Sudan, other North African nations there, you would find uh, the nations that are described to be specifically involved in the day of the Lord. You take Israel, tiny little Israel, and you go a thousand miles in any direction just about, you'll find nations who are just waiting for the chance to obliterate Israel. It's just, it's just where they are. And so this is where the focus is going to be. Now, this does not mean that the rest of the world will be unaffected by the day of the Lord. Uh, Ezekiel prophesies four acts of judgments on the planet. The sword, that's the military, then uh, famine, and then wild beasts. I don't know what that really means, except I know that after the flood, God put the fear of man into animals. Perhaps you will remove that fear during that time. And pandemics, he mentions four things. We've gone through the COVID-19, and we, can, we probably know better than anybody in the past how these things could be worldwide. Worldwide famine, worldwide pandemic that people cannot solve, military action going on. All these things are going to be parts of the day of the Lord when it comes. Millions of people from all the world will die in the judgment period of the day of the Lord. The center of the events, though, I'm saying, will be in the Middle East. Now some big ideas about the Middle East. I'm sorry, big ideas about the day of the Lord. Number one, the Lord will crush the rebellious world with catastrophic judgments. There are other terms that are used for the day of the Lord, just to make it more familiar to us. Uh, Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's distress. 
Again, Israel's distress during that time. It's the worst time ever for Israel. Um, John the Baptist calls this the time of the baptism of fire. Uh, Jesus describes this period of catastrophic judgment as a tribulation and the great tribulation. And nothing like the day of the Lord has devastated the earth since the days of the universal flood. So you get in the Old Testament prophets these kind of passages. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. It's pretty chilling, you know, what's being described here as to what will come on the planet whenever the day of the Lord begins. It will be the end of human life as we know it. Number two, the warrior Messiah at the end of this judgment period will arrive from heaven. We call this the second coming of Jesus Christ. I think probably most people have a, a kind of a romantic idea of what the, what the uh, second coming will be like. It'll just slow down, everybody be ooing and aahing. But that's not the way it shows up in Scripture at all. Actually, there's a lot of rejoicing that will happen in the heavens and among God's people for the Lord to come. But at the same time, uh, the arrival of the Messiah will be horrifying for unbelievers. So if you take your Bibles then and turn to Zechariah uh, 14, we'll sort of hang around in Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 for the next 10 minutes. Where are we here? And then we, we'll get out of that and talk a little bit about the uh, church as well. But Zechariah kind of summarizes some of the events that occur near the end of the tribulation, a whole bunch of things that are happening near the end of the tribulation period, near the end of the judgment phase of the day of the Lord. Um, it is easy to misunderstand or not understand the prophet Zechariah. Uh, I read, uh, you know, Martin Luther wrote two commentaries on Zechariah. In his second commentary, when he got to chapter 14, he begins a chapter this way. Here, in this chapter, I give up. <laughs> For I cannot Understand what the prophet is talking about. So, you know, if you had the wrong theological system, that's what you're going to say too when you come to Zechariah 14. But it's not that hard to discern what will happen when the Messiah comes. First, you have the attack on Jerusalem. This is part one. The Old Testament prophets teach that there's going to be this horrendous war when the Antichrist guy gathers together a coalition of Gentile nations to come against Israel. So we begin in Zechariah 14.2. I'm reading. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken. And the houses plundered. And the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile. But the rest of the people shall not be cut off from, this, from the city. Now, sometimes we call this the battle of Armageddon. Which I don't think is really a very good name for this battle. It is more than a battle. It's a, it's a many months uh, campaign. And also it doesn't really happen on Armageddon. It happens down around Jerusalem here. 
So the Antichrist and his armies, as you read from this passage, wins the first stage of the battle of Jerusalem. Half of the city is taken into captivity by the surrounding nations that are under the Antichrist at that time, and half are left in Jerusalem. Then you have, at the same time going on, now this may be new to you, but uh, there is also a battle down in the desert south between the Lord and others. It shows up in a number of the Old Testament prophets. They talk about this God coming from Teman. Okay, Teman is down south in southern Jordan and from Mount Paran, which is down on Mount Sinai. And there's, there's many of those passages that, that uh, have, many of the prophets that have something just like that. One of the most interesting ones, I think, is the uh, prophecy uh, in Isaiah. Isaiah is looking over the walls of Jerusalem south. And he sees somebody coming. And so this passage goes, Who is this that comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? Basra, again, is in southern Jordan. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And Messiah says, It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples, from the Gentiles, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help, not even the United States. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. And my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So the first picture we really have of the Messiah after he arrives from heaven is one with his robe splattered, the blood of his enemies as he moves from south up towards Jerusalem. We, re we read that passage. Pastor Gary read it in the... Uh, It's the rest of that. Sorry, I missed that. In the New Testament, where it tells us that when the Lord comes back, this is in Revelation 19, his robe is dipped in blood, and he's been treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So the blood that's on the Lord's robe when he comes back is not crucifixion or anything like that. He's been a, the lion of the tribe of Judah and has come to do judgment. So the Messiah comes, and then you have, I think, the battle for Jerusalem, part two, the final battle. Zechariah 14 picks up the story. Verse three, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. On the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord will come and all the holy ones with him, which includes us in this situation, as well as the holy angels, they all come at the gathering to watch over 
the battle, final battle of Jerusalem. Now it gets better after this, but this is kind of the highlight of the judgments that's going to take place during the day of the Lord. So number three, then a, a remnant of believers will emerge. You know, there's a lot of preaching that goes on during the tribulation period. You've got the two prophets, remember that? Revelation 11, you've got the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that come and preach the gospel. You even have an angel that flies in the midst of heaven and preaches the gospel. That's Revelation 14, 6. So that as a result of that, there is a great multitude saved, great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages are going to be saved at that time. And also, uh, you also have the revival in the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ. And that's in Zechariah 12. So if you turn your Bibles, please, there. The first part of Zechariah 12 tells the details of the battle, the final battle of Jerusalem. But in verse number 10 of Zechariah 12, here we begin to hear about the revival that goes on. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So here you have the beginnings of repentance. God pours out a spirit of grace. That's his part. Israel is certainly undeserving, just like we were undeserving of the grace of God. And yet God pours out grace on them He's a covenant-keeping God. And then the people's part is pleas for mercy. And they begin to repent. And verse number 11, On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadriminim in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, family of the house of Levi by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, their wives by themselves. And what do they pray? They pray, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten of God, and afflicted. And they're saying we killed our Messiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we have, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Great, great repentance, national repentance that takes place there. And number four, Yahweh will confirm the new covenant with Israel. That's Jeremiah 31. Number five, the Lord will be vindicated and take over the world. Dozens of times to the prophets, you have this phrase, then you will know that I am the Lord. Or then they will know that I am the Lord. Dozens of times. And Isaiah at the same time also uh, finalizes this cosmic war 
On that day, the Lord will punish the host, that's the armies, when you read host most of the time, he'll punish the armies, the wicked armies of the heavens in heaven, and he will punish the kings of the earth on the earth, and they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit, it's during the 1,000 millennial period, I think. They will be shut up in prison, and after many days they will be punished. And then number six, the Messiah will rule over a world of peace and righteousness. So this is Micah chapter 4. I won't read it all, but you know it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. People shall flow to it. Many nations shall say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. And then he talks about his becoming the Supreme Court uh, justice of the world at that time. And uh, he will secure peace and security for everybody. And then number seven, the day of the Lord is always impending. It's described as near. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. So for the Old Testament prophets, the day of the Lord is always impending. Um, so, you got a diagram there, right? In your syllabus. Can you see that? I think it's up here in line as well, up on PowerPoint as well. You have the prophet view of the future. So this is a prophet looking down. This is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, all the prophets, Micah, and so forth, looking forward. And what they see is this impending day of the Lord, which will begin with judgment, or a baptism of fire. And then what they see is the Messiah coming back and judging and setting up the kingdom. Uh, John calls this the baptism with the Spirit. So he was, he was in, he's, John's the Old Testament prophet, right? So he's thinking right with these people. So first you have the baptism with fire, then the baptism with the Spirit, the new covenant blessings. And this is the period of the kingdom of God here upon earth. They didn't know the kind of the two stages, the way it worked in the Old Testament. Uh, but we learned from the New Testament, the book of Revelation especially, that the first stage is going to be kind of the millennium, uh, a thousand years. Millennium, what does millennium mean? Millennium means thousand, honest means years, so a thousand years for the millennium. And then it merges into eternity. So that's the Old Testament prophets. But So uh, if I ask you a question... Uh, is the return of the Lord pre-millennial, post-millennial, or all-millennial, there is no kingdom here on earth? Uh, which would you take? Well, you should say pre-millennial. Can you see the line comes back? He comes back and sets up the millennial kingdom. This is what the Old Testament prophets thought. It's what they taught. And this is what you teach in your church as well, in your doctrinal statement the premillennial turn of Christ. And I have a definition there then in your syllabus. Premillennialism is a belief that Jesus will physically return to the earth. This is the second coming before the millennium. And then lastly, just briefly, the, we can be encouraged because the church will be raptured before the judgment phase of the day of the Lord begins. Now if you look at the Old Testament prophets' uh, timeline there, there's some things missing from our viewpoint, 
we look back on the New Testament, so we know some things that will be uh, happening later than what the Old Testament prophets knew about. So everything that's in red there in that passage in the Old Testament, in that diagram, the Old Testament prophets did not know about, but we know about it today. You have the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, you have the church age, and then you have the rapture. Now let me ask you two questions, and I'm just about done. Okay, i got three questions. But one is, why didn't the Old Testament prophets include the church in their future view of, in their view of the future? Answer, easy. They didn't know anything about it, right? It was a secret. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 3. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what's the church? Church is Jew, Gentile together in one body on equal footing. The Old Testament prophets didn't know about that. They didn't know anything about that. So when people start talking to you about the church in the Old Testament, uh, they're wrong. There's nothing about the church in the Old Testament at all. It's a mystery. That's what Paul clearly says. But then why didn't the Old Testament prophets include the rapture in their view of the future? Answer, because it was a mystery. They didn't know anything about it. 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Paul said, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall not all die, but we're all going to be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this, for this perishable, this corruptible body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body put on immortality. So what does the rapture mean then? First Thessalonians 4, um, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have died, fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, then the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the Greek word for catching up is arpazo. It's translated into Latin as rapimur, and the English word comes out of, do I have that on there? I guess I don't. The English word that comes out of that then is the word rapture. So the rapture is an English word translating the Latin back to the Greek. The rapture is an English word that means caught up. And so the rapture is an event I have in your hand out there where Jesus Christ will appear in the air, trumpet will sound, and all believers in Christ will leave the planet. So what Paul says there, it's very, very clear. Two events occur at the same time. Letter A would be the resurrection of all the dead church-age believers, and letter B would be the rapturing away, the taking away, the catching up of those who are alive at that time. When will the rapture of the church take place? Well, this before the tribulation, that's my view, it's a church's doctrinal statement. Pre-tribulational rapture, according to the New Testament, 
The rapture and resurrection of church-age believers occur before the judgments of the day of the Lord, the tribulation. There are other views on this, of course, post-tribulational, pre-wrath, mid-tribulationalism, other things. It's clear in my mind that it occurs before the day of the wrath. And here are some evidences for that. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we're kept out of the time of wrath. The Apostle Paul writes that we're supposed to wait for his, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And when you read the Old Testament, you look about the day of the Lord, all this talk about wrath. Paul says, we're to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. God has not destined us for this wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, encourage one another, build up one another just as you're doing. Also in Revelation 3.10, a similar passage, because you have kept my word, he's talking to one particular local church there, about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. Secondly, because the rapture is imminent, we believe the rapture is imminent, which means it could occur at any moment. There's nothing in prophecy that has to happen before the rapture. Philippians chapter... 3, verses 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to transform the, the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. I'm looking, far, I'm looking hard, I'm looking eagerly, I should say, for the transformation of my body. Okay, seven, eight years old, things are kind of falling apart here. I like the new body, get the new body, and then I'll begin to be able to serve the Lord again, uh, maybe better than what I can do now. And then number letter C, the church is not included in any of the tribulation passages, nothing in the Old Testament, of course, Day of the Lord passages. Read Revelation 4 through 18, all this discussion of the Day of the Lord, church is not there at all. In fact, letter D, the church is present in heaven, 24 elders, are in heaven while the tribulation is occurring on earth. I think they're representatives of the church around the throne were 24 elders and seated on the thrones were 24, 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. So I just tried to show you God's in control of everything. Uh, he has a plan. It's a definite plan. It's not a world just not going to peter out. But one of these days, the Lord is going to take us home one way or another, either through the resurrection or through the rapture. And then God will judge the world and then set up his kingdom that will go on for eternity. I have a prayer that you should pray. I'm not going to pray it now, but pray it every day. I like to try it every day. It's this, simply this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, that's our prayer, that this will happen and God will take over the world and glorify himself. Okay, I'm done. Gary, shall I pass it, Gary? Shall I take some questions on this? I know this was a lickety-split survey. And I just wanted to get the idea, Old Testament, New Testament. It's, eschatology is involved with lots of things.
God's in control. Dr. Larry has good stuff. Reminds me of seminary, but extra fast. <laughs> All I know about eschatology in 45 minutes. But um, seriously, I guess broader, there, there are like books upon books to study this more deeply. This is really just an overview. But I want to open this up. Like, do you guys have any questions that's like on your thoughts? Um, in your mind, I see a couple of hands raising. Look at Sandra first. Speak clearly. Is the baptism of fire happening now? Is that what you're saying? No, I don't think so. Not what John was talking about. Baptism of fire is a judgment. Baptism. Baptism of fire is a judgment. Baptism of the Spirit was talking about the coming of the Spirit in the, second in the New Covenant. So these are not here yet. Rapture can happen anytime. Yeah, the rapture is between, the day of the Lord does, the baptism of the fire is the day of the Lord. It's a judgment part of the day of the Lord. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we talked more on the side during lunch. You're not quite getting Yeah, well, don't know. Those are, yeah. these are things that, uh, you know, think about the rest of our life. They're just really encouraging things if you get a hold of them. It's all over the place. I see them, uh, Tommy. What? Yeah. With uh, Isaiah 13, how do you like, differentiate them? I'm just understanding it's like cross side against like Assyria. How can you tell which are prophets? Oh, boy. Yeah. Sharing. Yeah. I've, I've got a list of things on that, which I probably can't give to you right now. But. Uh, the prophets, I, the prophets are, okay, they're receiving these big picture revelations. And in those prophecies, there may be something about right then, and there may be something about this future day of the Lord. And it's very hard, I think, to separate them out, uh, you know, one by one. I don't even think we're supposed to uh, do that. We're just supposed to get the basic themes of each one of those. But there are things, there are reasons why they are hard to understand. They both they use both, uh, they both talk about the same, same nations at right that time with Syria and often to the future in the day of the Lord. But one of the ways you can always tell is if it hasn't happened yet, you know it's the future day of the Lord. Things in the sky and all that kind of stuff it talks about. I have in my uh, notebook here from another lecture ministry, a lot of conversation about that. If you have time afterwards, I can give, fill you in a lot more details on that. But I think that's a difficult time. That's a really good question because we got two things going on. We got the, uh, the wars and the battles that are going to occur in connection with the captivities, both the Syrian and Babylonian captivity. Then there is a, a lot of the prophecies extend out into the future and talk about this future eschatological day of the Lord. So this, how to understand that's a good question. Mm -hmm.